Hey, this is horror artist Lynn Hansen, and I'm really excited to be guest of honor at Horror on Main. You're going to come too, right? We can all hang. See you there. Horror on Main, a new weekend convention for the horror community. There are plenty of horror cons to choose from. We explore all the shadows within horror entertainment, including writers and actors, but also artists, publishers, directors, and composers, and we're bringing them to you. Join us Memorial Day weekend 2023 in Hunt Valley, Maryland. Come to the block party and meet your new neighbors. See horroronmain.com for details. The Curator will see you now. Are you looking for conversations with some of the hottest names in horror today, like Eric LaRocca, Haley Piper, Clay McLeod Chapman, Laurel Hightower, Jamie Flanagan, and Allie Wilkes? along with indie horror superstars like Brianna Morgan and Joe Coach, then you should tune in to Terrifying Tomes of Terror with your host, the curator of horror, Chance Forshe, wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for your next horror writing podcast fix? The This Is Horror podcast for readers, writers, and creators is the ultimate show for writing advice, tips, and a personal look into the lives of all your favorite authors. This is Horror Podcast. Listen in to long-form conversations with some of the best writers and creatives on the planet. Over 400 episodes with masters of horror such as Joe R. Lansdale, Chuck Palahniuk, Josh Mallerman, Joe Hill, Charlene Harris, Craig Clevenger, Ellen Datlow, Kathy Koja, and many more. The This Is Horror Podcast. Listen in at www.thisishorror.com. That's the This Is Horror Podcast for readers, writers, and creators. An agency that sends social workers into the homes of grieving families to impersonate dead loved ones. The kind old woman who saved a teenager's life, but who now finds herself haunted by the weight of a cheated suicide. And the daughter of a candlestick maker as she tries to survive a painful existence after her father's execution for making human chandeliers of drunken cowboys. These stories and more, ranging from supernatural to the frighteningly domestic, splatterpunk to the weird and cosmic, stain the pages of Cut to Care, a collection of little hurts by Aaron Dries. These are stories about caring too much in a world that doesn't always care for you back. Also featuring an exclusive introduction by writer-director Mick Garris, creator of Masters of Horror. Cut to Care by Aaron Dries. A collection of little hurts. Out now. It's Philip Francassi's book. <laughs> What's up, Phil? Hey, is that an arc of boys in the valley? Yeah. 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 Huh. I don't know how I got lucky enough to get it, but. Uh... Paul Miller is a good yeah. dude. That's Paul. how you got lucky enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I am going to invite Brian on now. Brian McCauley, what's up? What? There's Brian. <laughs> I know that guy. I told you he'd be happy. <laughs> what <if> you... <laughs> Did you not know I was going to be on this thing? I had no idea. What? <laughs> I'm a surprise hey, We guest. didn't know before this morning. <laughs> oh my god, this is so great. I'm just here to I'm just here to agree with everything you say about your book. <laughs> I'm like, "Yep, it's really good." 
Brian McCauley, this is your life. <laughs> if there's we're gonna, anything... bring your mom, we're gonna bring your mom in and your like your childhood. <laughs> yeah, how many more surprises and... can I deal with? That'd be hilarious. <laughs> um, can wait, just wait till you see what else we got lined up for you. It's gonna be whole... <laughs> Pat's like texting Pat, people as we, Pat, as yeah. we speak. <laughs> Pat's been working on it. Hey, Philip, really quickly before we jump in, uh, congrats on that. Uh, this is horror nomination for uh, Beneath the Pale Sky. Yes. Oh, you beat me to it. Yeah. Oh, great yeah, collection, man. I hope it wins that one. So deserved. Yep. Thank you. And you guys got nominated for podcast, right? Yeah, did we were prompt- we did. Yeah. We were prompted about that. I won I won that award for um Behold the Void. Wow. Oh, oh, awesome. In in twenty seventeen. that. I didn't know that. We, yeah, Behold the Void won the story collection of the year from This Is Horror in twenty seventeen. That's really right. cool. I hope you double up. Go for two for two. It'll be nice. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Welcome to Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. Today, we're joined by guest host, Philip Fricassi. It's been far too long, sir. Say hello. You caught me drinking my drink. Scott, I did hey, not time Patrick, that on <laughs> Patrick, hello. Brennan, hello. Brian, hello. Yes, and today we have... A, a lovely guest. He uh, has Curse of the Reaper. It's a fucking great book, but we'll get into that later. Say hello, Brian. Hello, everybody. And you know what I'm going to ask you? What got you into horror? Oh, I do know. Um, I feel like every time I answer a question like this, I have I tell a different story because there are so many different kind of tributaries that got me pulled in. Like and Keith Ledger in, in The Dark Knight. Playing the Joker. Yeah, oh, he has a know. different origin story. Oh, yes, who exactly. Tells. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually big influence on Curse of the Reaper, but um, can I actually yeah. pause you? I'm. This is I. I forgot to say something. What's that? Uh, in the intro, because the we didn't know that we'd be nominated, and I'm sorry to interrupt your story on your episode. Right. <laughs> I forgot to talk to about this. himself. It will <laughs> no. It'll make it. I'm going to mention you too, Philip. It's it'll sure. make it so much easier. Um, I told him that you know not to do it. That it was self-aggrandizing. Oh, but you fucking man! It. You're the one that told me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's You'll rewind. In there, aren't you? <laughs> do We're going to rewind for one sec. <clears throat> All right, guess what, guys? We got nominated first time for a award. It's uh. It's nominated by our peers for nonfiction podcast of the year. And uh, all you have to go to all you have to do is go to this is slash awards. And the guide to uh, vote is pretty easy. And we also have uh, Philip Fricassi, who was nominated. Um, all you got to go for him is to go to the uh, what is it? Novella of the year. Col- a collection. Story collection. Oh, I'm going to cross that out. All you got to do is to go to the uh, short story collection of the year. And uh, he he's going against some pretty, like us, going against some pretty uh, tough talent. But uh, think about, consider voting for us. Consider voting for Philip Fricassi's Beneath a Pale Sky. That's it. I don't, I don't know. I'll transition it better and edit in. All right. Sorry about that, Brian. What got you into horror? Uh, so I actually wrote a whole essay kind of on this topic for Nightmare Magazine called Hand Me Down Horror because I, 
I feel like every horror fan I encounter has some kind of personal story of how they were invited into this genre, like handed a VHS tape or a book by a family member or friend. Um, and there were many influences like that for me, but the big one I would have to name is my brother. Like without my brother, I probably would not be on this path. Having an older brother was like a godsend in so many ways. Ways Like I feel like he paved the path. He was like a skater punk who listened to Marilyn Manson and freaked my parents out. And then me being the younger brother, it like it was a lot easier for me to just like sneak the CDs from his <laughs> thing and secretly listen in. Uh, but he also, yeah, was the first one who showed me horror movies like Evil Dead. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he moved to New York for college. And when I was in high school, you know, I grew up in North Jersey. So I could take the train into New York and we would go to Kim's video on Astor Place, which does not exist anymore. But it was just this mecca of just VHS, like the walls were literally painted with posters of just old school movies. I love um, that. Yeah, it just, there was something about it that was just like a game changing, like visceral experience. Um, but yeah, definitely having an older brother who was into that kind of stuff and passing things down to me and saying like, you have to check this one out. And if you like that, watch this next. Um, it's huge. You make a good point because we all grew up. Well, we all grew up before what we experience in pretty much every section of the world now, which is a uh, interconnected world instantaneously and that's great and all but some ways it's ruined taken away rather the oral the oral storytelling um like a passing down of a, a you got to check out this movie or that one because one thing that i did i didn't have an older brother but um i did have an older friend who was like an older brother growing up and he got me into video games and that led to some other pass and and I, I remember one way I consumed my media was through him. Like, I remember he sent me, or I was over at his house. He had a CD, and um, he's he's like, hey, my his older brother, he's like, I got Star Wars Episode One burned on here. I'm like, whoa, let's watch that. And uh, another time when I first heard about The Matrix, I remember him trying to tell me about it. And I'll just keep it short and sweet. He confused the fuck out of me. He's like, it's about this world that we're really in, but we're not. And this is, you got to keep in mind, like, this is before, like, we had computers in class, but this is, uh, let's see, this would probably be um, the late, this is the late 90s. So, like, computers aren't super uh, commonplace back then like they are now. And I'm only saying this for, like, younger people. Um, so it was super confusing back then, but yeah, that's my story. Philip, please jump in, sir. <laughs> well, first of all, I need to ask you guys, is this microphone working? Because I'm talking right into it. <laughs> it sounds a little you can fuzzy. Can hear me? Can you, can is this you hear what me drugs okay? are like, man? <laughs> my cat, my cat is looking for have the, no idea what's going on. <laughs> I wish you could see, I'm talking, oh, well, for audio listeners, I'm talking into my cat's head, but if you could see... <laughs> My cat's expression right now at me, it's pure, it's pure hate. It's pure like, okay, I'm going to let it go for now. But when this is over, you and me, we're going to have a, we're going to have a conversation. That's, that's like that cruel. That's pure. Um, that's feline. Yeah. If that was a dog. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to talk different. about how, I'm not going to talk about how old I am or, or whether or not there are computers in my school. Um, but, but, uh, but it will just suffice to say that, um, 
I had computers when I was in high school, yeah. But I'm a lot older than you guys, so. I'm be interesting because, like, you know, and I kind of touch on this in the essay too of like, you know, I I do miss that that time before when it was pure word of mouth and the time like before like yeah. a, this a secret society kind of thing. But but like with the advent of social media, we just have kind of accelerated versions of that connection where like. I mean, we wouldn't be here without it because like I connected with with Philip through Instagram and he told me about your podcast and your podcast is passing down horror to all the listeners. And so there's a there's a much wider reach of it um, that can then turn into personal connections. So there's at least an upside, I think, to the to the technology of it all. I, was gonna I, ask. I honestly I honestly don't know if I would be a published author if it wasn't for social media. And I'm not saying that I'm being serious because I oh, same I here. met mm. I met authors who I never would have met and they got me how, uh, you know, they got helped me with advice and how, you know, what they were doing and communicate with me and put me in touch with other people. And, and uh, yeah, I've met in the, like, you know, just everything that I have done has root been rooted in social media, you know, and obviously you have to have the, you know, you have to have the talent to back up, those kind of breaks or whatever it is but but um but but i don't but it's you know back in those days when you were like um when everything was via snail mail or 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 whatever and it was just and everything was so slow and you you had the big writer's market book that was you know three inches thick and you looked up an agent and then you sent them a query letter then three months later you got a postcard with a reject stamp and you didn't know any writers because you couldn't meet any writers unless you were a writer and you went to like conventions and stuff but if you were and hadn't published anything that was very difficult so social media has totally changed the game um and i and i think that's one of the reasons we have personally i i feel like there's a lot of um a lot more diversity in writing now and i feel like there's a lot more indie writers now and I feel like that's because great voices and talent is, you know, is finding a way. Um, whereas before, a lot of those doors were were hard to find, much less open. You know. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Go ahead, Brian. I don't even think it's like in you know weird to say. You know, I wouldn't be uh, a published author without social media. I mean, I don't even think twice about it. And I think there's probably a lot of. Um, newer published authors who probably have that same kind of feeling, which is, you know, why when Twitter looked like it was going to shut down a couple weeks ago, and who knows, it, it still may. Um, God, God only knows what it's going to do. Um, that's scary because you do kind of uh, build your platform on it and rely on that to a certain extent to, you know, uh, speaking for myself, sell my meager pittance of books uh, via via tweets and, you know, Instagram posts and whatnot. Um, all right. I, I want to take it back to Brian. First of all, you know, um, big shout out to mom and pop video stores who did not care if you were 17. Um, yes. that, you know, I, I, I guess today kids can just, you know, turn on streaming services and they don't ask for ID, but man, like a lot of fond memories of the, uh, the, the store block from my house that did not give a shit what I wanted to rent, no matter how young I looked. Um, I am actually really interested in you have a BA in horror theory, which I would not have guessed was a thing. And I want to hear a little bit more about that. That is, it's not a thing because I created it. So I, I went to, uh, so that the NYU's Gallatin school of individualized study, um, which is basically a school where you can 
uh, kind of create your own major. And then at the end of four years, you kind of have to put together this big, uh, you have to defend it essentially in a, in a colloquium with multiple professors and you have a reading list and you kind of explain what you, what the fuck you've been doing for the last four years. Um, so, uh, so my, I think my full concentration was, uh, was creative writing and horror theory. So I would took, I was taking fiction writing classes pretty much every semester and also screenwriting classes, film theory and film analysis classes. And then also, um, all of the things that I was interested in as a horror writer. So psychology, sociology, uh, literature, just anything where I could kind of look at the genre through different lenses and try to figure out like, what's the history of this genre? What is it about people that like, what draws people to it? Um, and yeah, I gratefully like classes popped up for the four years that I was there that were just like fit perfectly. Like I took a class on horror cinema um, and I took a psychoanalysis class where I wrote papers about Twilight Zone episodes and, um, yeah, just really dug deep into my love for the genre. And it was really, uh, I mean, it's very funny now to like, look back and be like that I'm doing the thing that I studied. Like the, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's more than that. most college graduates can say, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing it with my, my degree. You know, it's interesting. I was going to say, uh, Brian is that. you're very lucky um, or fortunate or whatever the word might be uh, that you knew at that time of your life, what you wanted to be. Like I've always known I wanted to be a writer, but I never thought about becoming a horror writer until five, six, well now seven, like 2015. Right. So, Mm -hmm. but I've been writing my whole life, but I never, you know, made that, that, that decision or that connection or whatever you want to call it, where I was like, Oh, I'm going to start writing genre fiction so it's I, you know I, I it makes me happy to hear that you knew even back in your college days that you already knew that that's what you wanted to do i think that's i think that's great i wish that i had started writing horror earlier so i'm always a little envious when I, you know people start publishing when they're uh younger but um but yeah that's that's really cool and that's there's something like a very cool school too to allow their students to do that i'd never heard of that yeah. it's really neat it's cool. It's it's because they like the school itself has its own courses called they're they're called interdisciplinary studies. So like they they're just kind of like like I took a class called Guilty Subjects and we examined the concept of guilt by studying court cases, reading nonfiction fiction, and just like digging into this like thorny subject, religious texts, just like pulling in all the different disciplines and like grappling with these like big questions. Um but then I had access to like Tisch Film School and I knew, you know, for me, I was actually more focused on becoming a filmmaker. Like I, I shot my first film on 16 millimeter back in high school. But then that experience, I was like, you know, actually making movies and production was way too anxiety inducing for me, especially like directing them. And I was like, I'm more interested in the storytelling aspect of it. So I focused on screenwriting and creative writing, but I never in college really attempted to write a novel like I really focused on using creative writing as a way to strengthen screenwriting and focus on that um, heading into grad school but I'm I'm grateful that that's now come full circle and I had that practice with the fiction writing classes that's amazing um I would love to know how you two met each other because I I messaged Philip today I was (laughs) 
I was going to shoot him a text, and then I was like, it's 7.30 here. That means it's 4.30 there. I'm not going to get killed by him from <laughs> all the way back there. That's a no-no. I've learned that in the past. Um, with other I would have killed you if you texted me at 7.30. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just messaged him. They'll send that cat after you, man, and it's mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm allergic, so it would win. But um, I did that because, uh, and I told Philip, I'd tell him this uh, when we were recording. But uh, the reason is, is because when I asked you, Brian, how you heard about the show, I, I, I'm not, I'm not fishing for compliments when I do that with people. I genuinely don't know. Like I have analytics on the podcast, but it doesn't break it up beyond like it's from, from this uh, audio directory or, or whatever. Like that, that doesn't, that does not give me personally sufficient enough information where I can be like. How do I target that? How like how would someone come about it? So long story short, that's why I got Philip on because of the connection with you two. He's got the cover blurb on uh, your incredible book, uh, Curse of the Reaper, and we we genuinely love Philip. Um, we had him on first for season one when, and I don't think he gets enough credit for this. Not that he did it for that. I'm gonna beat you to that one, Philip. But um, horror writers for Black Lives Matter. That was a big deal and that hit over twenty five thousand dollars in I think a week, maybe two. Um that's how I first found out about him. And um it'd be nice to have him back on before we ended the season. So all those reasons is why we got him on now. But I would like to know why or rather how uh, you two met. Yeah, I I just uh, like cold DM'd Philip because when I, um, when my book sold to Talus Press, uh, I looked and saw like what other books are they doing? And I saw Philip's book was uh, A Child Alone with Strangers was coming through them. And I read um, Beneath the Pale Sky and fucking loved it. Um, he absolutely ruined the Santa Monica Pier for me forever. I can't, look at it the same way ever again without utter terror striking into my heart and i live very close to it so that happens often (laughs) (laughs) i feel like i live like equidistant between santa monica airport and santa monica pier so it really you just like trapped me in terror yeah Um, he triangulated you man oh shit yeah (laughs) i guess i shouldn't reveal too much um but yeah so i just reached out to him through instagram was just like hey we both have books coming from this press i would love to kind of pick your brain about publishing because I'm totally new to it. Um, and he was kind enough to to meet up for a coffee and and chat and share his his experience. And I was incredibly grateful for it because um, and also we both strangely have written lifetime movie thrillers, which was another point of I was just like, <laughs> what are the chances? Um, so, yeah, was your movie was your movie produced by Mar Vista, by the way? I can't mean to same, ask you that. Yeah, it was. I okay. Did, okay. I did holy shit. Pop, five movies for Marvista. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. So, so to meet a horror fiction writer who I admired, who also was a screenwriter who also lived in LA was a really great kind of, uh, cause I was coming into this community, like not knowing anybody. Um, That's how we all come in, man. Yeah. For, well, for the most part. And this even, before... even Ronald, even Ronald Kelly. I, I know yeah. that. I know him well enough to say that. I didn't have, and this was through Instagram because I did not have Twitter at this point. I had, I had never been on Twitter and I, um, you know, decided to join to, to see if I could connect with more folks that way. And I'm, I'm grateful that I did, but yeah, Philip was the first one who really took the, took the time to sit with me and share his experience and, uh, mentioned your, your podcast and a few others. And, 
um, encouraged me to go to StokerCon, um, which was the best decision ever. Um, so very grateful for that recommendation because that's where I got to really meet people in person um, and got to speak on some panels like with with Jamie Flanagan and with Grady Hendricks and everybody. It just like grew from there of just like everyone I've encountered in this community has been so supportive and it's all grown out of that. So that's yeah. so cool. I got to ask, Philip, I, I didn't even think about this until now. Why would you mention ours? That's again, I don't know how to gauge it. And I'm really grateful and thankful for that. So thank you. And again, he's not fishing for compliments. No, 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 no. I'm really not. I generally feel like I'm kind of dumb and don't know stuff when I should. So that's why I'm asking. Plus, you you got a great podcast, by the way, which you should mention. Yeah, the dark word. Yeah, I was gonna mention the dark word. It's um, you know, per what you know, Brian was saying. One of the reasons I created the dark word was specifically for that reason, which was because so many writers come into this not knowing anything, and it, this includes me. You know, I wish when I when I pitched the dark word to Audio Hopper, I said. I was thinking in my head, this I want to do the kind of podcast that I wish had existed when I was first starting out, that told you what to do and not to do, that gave you advice on how to promote yourself, that talked about agents and publishing and editing and all that kind of stuff. So so that's what I wanted to create. And I've done two seasons, and I think I'm probably – I think that's probably all I'm going to do. Um, but, uh -huh. uh, but the second season is in the can, and it's going to come out basically now – I think there's like – I think there's like – I want to say at least six more episodes that need to come out that I've already recorded. Um, with like Ramsey Campbell and I think Chuck Wendig just came out and City Hartman just came out. I got one coming out with Brian Keene. So a lot of good advice for writers. Um, but yeah. And then, uh, yeah, but yeah, Brian and I had had coffee and, and I, and I read his book. Ironically, um, I couldn't go to uh, Stoke for Con because I was in New York city and I got COVID and, um, and so I had to cancel my trip to Stoke Con, which was a bummer because, uh i was nominated and i wanted to go and um and i was on a couple panels and the whole thing and so i was really bummed out about that but on the positive side i got to read brian's book <laughs> while i was quarantined in new york city that he sent me a digital archive which i really enjoyed obviously and blurbed and promote when able and then yeah and then we've done um we did a book launch for for your book in uh at the village well here in culver city california and um yeah, it's been a lot of fun. But yeah, Brian and I both worked for, um, wrote for a company called Marvista Entertainment. And I did a movie called Girl Missing, uh, which was on Lifetime. And I was supposed to do a second movie called Vintage um, that ended up getting uh, uh, canned at the 11th hour, unfortunately. Um, so, but, and that was kind of the end of my, that was pretty much the end of my screenwriting. Uh, and I kind of started focusing on fiction after that. Nice. Um I'm having a brain fart. Holy shit. Okay, yeah, that was it. I was going to say, on your show, Philip, uh, the one with Ellen Datlow, that was so... I might have told you this already, but that was a huge, inspiring one for me because I listened to it right before I edited my first anthology, and I took a lot of mental notes on like the order of stories and how important they are, so yeah. I, I think I think it's a great show to listen to. Yeah, um, Lisa Morton talks a lot about editing anthologies as well. If you haven't heard that one, that's a I good haven't. one. Okay, yeah, you should check it out. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Brian, give us a synopsis on Curse of the Reaper. Curse of the Reaper. So, Curse of the Reaper uh, tells the story of Howard Browning. He's an an actor, 
like a classically trained theater actor whose big break in Hollywood was in the 80s playing the Reaper, which is a slasher villain in a, in a slasher franchise that went through the entirety of the 80s, eight films. Um, and the story picks up in the year 2005 and Howard's now in his 60s. He's a bit washed up, just going to kind of low-level conventions to sign autographs. Fans aren't really coming out the way they used to, and he's a bit a bit lost until he discovers that the studio is rebooting Night of the Reaper, but they are kicking Howard to the curb and recasting the killer role. Um, so the role is now being taken over by Trevor Maine, who used to be a sitcom star as a as a child in a full house type show. Um, and But now he's more infamous for being in tabloids and struggling with addiction and being in and out of rehab. But he really wants to, you know, change up his image by playing this dark role. Um, and as Howard fights to reclaim his legacy and uh, take the role back, he's, his mind starts to sort of meld with the monstrous character that he brought to life. I want to hear Philip from you and then Brennan, and then I'll go uh, what you thought about the book. Without, I hated it. I can't believe I you put just, that on the cover. I was reading it on my iPad, and if it wasn't a $1,000 iPad, I swear to Christ, I would have smashed that thing. <laughs> smashed it to pieces. I would, have, then I would have spat upon it, and then I would have cursed it. That was the, the blurb would just be like spit dripping yeah. down the cover. <laughs> no, I'd be going like, there's a blurb in there. I can pull something. Yeah. <laughs> um. No, I loved it. Of course, I loved it. I blurbed it. I, I think I'm on the I'm on the cover, which surprised me. Brian gave me a, a, a courtesy gift copy of the book, and I, I don't think it was until I got home that I was like, "Oh shit, I'm on the cover of this book." Which was cool. Um, <laughs> Hell yeah, uh, yeah. Um, no, I loved it. I thought it was really original. I thought it was such a spot on, um, perfect blend of um, psychological horror and slasher horror. And uh, there's some really fun things that Brian does, like uh in the book where he he has like uh excerpts of screenplays of this movies that kind of go throughout the the, the throughout the book that i really loved and thought was really genius and um yeah another thing that we talked about it a lot but the other thing i really liked about the book was just because i'm kind of this way i'm, I'm a very i'm a very character driven horror writer everybody's a character driven horror writer i didn't mean to offend anybody but i just i i enjoy really fleshed out characters and I tend to really focus on characterization when I write. And um, what I liked about Brian's book was how interesting the characters were. And um, and the fact that even, um, and how fleshed out the characters were. And I also thought that some the uh, the minor character, the secondary characters um, are really fascinating as well. Like the, the deal with addiction. And uh, there's, a, there's a female character that deals with um, a sort of, uh, what's the word I would use? where she sort of um, feels kind of locked into a relationship that's sort of based on sort of a, uh, a Nightingale syndrome almost thing where she keeps coming back to a guy who treats her terribly. And so there's a lot of interesting things going on in the book besides just like the, the horror story aspect. And the other thing I really enjoyed about it was how you never really knew um, what was real and what was not real for, for a good portion, for big portions of the book as it pertained to what Howard is, was thinking and what was really his voice, what was really supernatural voice, what was just kind of madness, what was so, um, and then there's some other dark stuff that happens that you don't see coming. Uh, so yeah, I, I thought it was a really complex story. I thought it was a, a, a um, what could have been a very simple, obvious narrative that was turned into a very complex 
a very deep psychological dive into some really fascinating characters. So I, I, I yeah, I adored the book, and I and, and I know it's doing really well. So I, I, it doesn't surprise me at all. Thank you. I, you know what? There is so much that sorry, Philip Brian. said that I. Uh, what? I said sorry, Brian. I I interrupted, oh. and then right. I interrupted you again. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Are you sure this time? Should I go? Okay. <laughs> no, Brian's gonna go. Okay. No, I think there's, uh, there there no, are so many things that. Oh God, damn it! Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll see now. Now my train of thought has left the station. First, uh, Philip no. takes Alora's name in vain, and then you, you I fuck. Did? Oh, you said uh, Jesus Christ or something like that. I don't know. I did. Uh, he earlier, you guys said I'm we sorry. we got to be careful because Brian's a family writer. So oh. I'm just I'm just stirring the shit pot. I'm like on the cusp yes. of being canceled. It's literally going to happen any day. I'm just I'm. I'm well, you're in good company. Anyway. Go we'll ahead, for the stars on that one. <laughs> yeah. All right. So what I've now said three times, so now I'm really repeating myself. Is uh, you know, Philip hit Philip hit a lot of nails on the head. You have to stop him. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Man, I can't form a coherent thought. It's Friday night. It's a long week. Um. I loved it though. I absolutely loved this book, and I I, I heard Brian talk on uh, Chance Forshee's podcast, "Terrifying Tomes of Terror," um, and it just it sounded like something that would be interesting. So I reached out to Brian for uh, uh, a signed copy, and he was nice enough to uh, send me one. And I just found myself absolutely sucked in. Like you know, whatever whatever reached out and grabbed me about, hey, this could be interesting. This could be unique. Uh, it was just, it was tenfold. You know, I've, I made no secret about saying this is, I didn't even finish it before I said, this is going to be one of my top books of the year. And for, again, a lot of those reasons, the depth of character is huge. Um, the psychological aspect of Howard, um, and that kind of almost like hint at dementia and what's real and what's not. And there's, there's absolutely a very emotional aspect to it that almost takes you by surprise. Um, this is just my interpretation, but it almost read like uh, with with Trevor, Trevor's almost set up. So like when I first meet him, I think he's going to be a little bit more intentionally two dimensional. And he's absolutely not. He's every every time he shows up in the story, it's interesting and I'm hooked and I just I, I want to see what happens next. And, you know, frankly, that's that's the best Thing that a story can do for me is I just can't turn the pages fast enough because I need to know where it's going. Uh, obviously, the inclusion of like the screenplay and like the mixed media aspect um, only only serves to enhance that experience and just tell the story from you know these different angles. And you know it adds a little bit of lightheartedness to it, like some of the um, some of the like you know uh, one liners and stuff from those scripts are just like they're priceless, man. They're a lot of fun. <laughs> um, so I'll I'll stop rambling. I'll throw it to Patrick. Um, <clears throat> so this goes back to what we were saying. I agree with everything you guys said about how lucky and grateful we are with the modern tech and how it's afforded us uh, opportunity as well as really globally um, bridging different walks of life, diversity in every sense of the word, um, unlike when we were growing up. All that said, when I was growing up in the 90s, um, I didn't have any friends that liked horror. So <clears throat> my mom wanted to do stuff with me, and I wanted to watch horror movies. So 
she took me to Circuit City or Best Buy or all these stores that either almost don't exist and have those products or don't exist anymore at all, except for like on a website, I guess, Circuit City I'm talking about or um, this California-based uh, video store. Anyways, my point is, is she would watch these movies with me and they were almost always slashers. So I got big into the 80s slashers um, in the 90s. And that's one level I connected with this book and with you, Brian. And the other is that it just, it was like, it, it, it's a mix of everything that Brian, uh, excuse me, Brennan and Philip said, excuse me. Uh, it's a mix of what they said on top of that it, it just felt like I'm witnessing just a young, and I wish I had a good comparison. I want to say R11, but that's not it. I want to say Wes Craven, that's not it. I don't have anyone to compare you to, but it feels like this is too good of a book to not carry out for a very long time with other books of this magnitude in complexity, in depth, in hearts. Um, I'm just excited to see what's next because you're very talented. Um, clearly in multiple areas i mean the words speak for themselves um i'm i'm just excited and i love this i really do love this book thank you guys i'm squirming in my seat just, just, <laughs> just like, brian's like words. brian's like please continue I will uh, be yeah, here. what else who's next who are you gonna, yeah, gonna bring in next? another yeah. guest or what's what's up no yeah, um yeah. No, it, where are you at it really it means I don't know why I'm snapping my fingers. <laughs> chance. It, it chance so three snaps and chance a chance he arrives. The curator of horror is here. I he wish did. he was here. That'd he was perfect. the first uh first to play the Reaper in a in a stage reading at a Halloween yeah. hangover. So um Oh, tell us about that, because I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, it, it it was great. It was uh it was at Barnes and Noble Libby Place in Virginia where um where James and Tiff are super big supporters of the horror genre and they gathered a bunch of authors and um, did readings and panels. Um, and I decided for my reading, since it was the first reading where it was enough people to pull it off, I decided to stage the very first screenplay segment. Uh, and I cast uh, Nat Cassidy, Rachel Harrison, Chance, Porsche, and, and Michael Seidlinger um, in, in the roles. And uh, it was incredibly fun. It was a delightful way to to do a little stage performance. Um, but yeah, I I also don't want to like gloss over you know the very kind words that from all of you, and and I'm grateful. And uh, it, you know, I feel like I had a lot of imposter syndrome coming into fiction writing as a screenwriter, and and you know, there's always that voice of just like, are you sure you can pull this off? Are you sure that you're can do this um and it took a lot of you know it's it's weird being a writer requires a lot of just like commitment and almost a delusional level of self-confidence at certain times to just be like I can do this I can make it better every day just chip away at this thing and make it better and better and better and it's it's a very slow process as you all know of uh when you start with a first draft and just try to keep getting it better and better um but I'm grateful that that it got to the point where it it became an actual book that people are reading. And it's very surreal to have people read it and reflect things back. Um, like to me, this it's it's fucking pure magic. It's really 
such a strange, like when I do the full zoom out, I'm going to sound like a really high Los Angelino here, but like when you like zoom out and you're like, I just arranged 80 something thousand words in a certain order. And then I hand that to somebody else and they read it. And then they talk about this, this imaginary character that I invented and we all have in our brain. Like what, what are we doing here? It's maddening. It's so that's, I mean, I think that's probably what the theme of the book is too, that like on some level creative work is almost supernatural to me at least. And I kind of wanted to dig into that in a very literal way in the book, I guess. I figured out what book and what author you reminded me of. It's been fucking killing me. Richard Shizmar is chasing the boogeyman. And I'll tell you, I will tell you exactly why. I mean, take away the fact that you both are very, um, very nice people and really goddamn smart and good at what you do. But as authors and with those books specifically, um, I'm no expert in the field. So take my word for whatever it is. But if Shizmar totally redefined um the true crime genre with that book um and that that's not coming from me that's coming from people that are smarter than me with this but it feels like you did that with the slasher genre um you just did something where like philip said it it could have been pretty straightforward and two-dimensional it wasn't uh what you did was you tackled a lot of really scary things that we face in real life. Like you have your main character who uh, I thought of Tony Todd and, and, and Doug Bradley because they have these new reprise movies where it's not them anymore, you know? Um, well, Tony Todd was in it technically for a few seconds, but he, I think you get my point and you're, you're tackling, you know, Alzheimer's you're tackling um, the, the victim of a, uh, someone who's addicted to um, narcotics uh, you're, you're tackling a, a lot and it's hard to, I, I had a hard time seeing a bad guy and I won't have the spoiler. I won't say it in detail, but uh, when Howard finds out the reason why him and his wife, if this is too much of a spoiler, tell me and I'll cut it. Um, when he finds out the stark truth about him and his ex, I didn't know how to react as a reader. I mean, it, it felt like I was, I was reading a, a newspaper article and I don't know if I want to kill the guy or if my heart just wants to squeeze out blood and tear up. Um, so that's from my point of view. That's why I think it's just, it's of the same tier of chasing the boogeyman by Richard Chismar. Um, I've talked enough guys. Why don't one of you jump in meaning any three of you or all three at the same time? I mean, I th- thank you. And uh, that that's a, that's a very kind comparison. I loved that book and Richard Chismar was at Halloween hangover, which was a two day event. And he was there on the first day and I was, too nervous to say hi to him. And I was like, I'll talk to him tomorrow. Just like be cool today. Talk to him tomorrow. <laughs> and then as he was leaving out the door, he's like, take care everybody. And I found out that he wasn't coming for the second day. So I, I'm kicking myself yeah. for not talking to him. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as the, the, the character, like, like for, for me, 
like character is everything as as i think philip was talking about too of like like character driven narrative is is the whole point for me um of creating characters that people can care about and feel and even if you have those conflicted feelings which is for me the the most interesting experience with the story is that like you both are you both love and hate a character or you have conflicted feelings of like you want to like, like one reader told me like with Trevor that they wanted to smack him and hug him at the same time and I was like yeah that's anybody who's loved somebody who has that struggle knows that frustration um and that that paradox and that to me like to me writing is always about just building empathy of of give of putting you in the shoes of the characters who, who it's, whose experience is not your own so that you can feel what it's like to to live through them and therefore like when you put the book down and go out into the world maybe you'll have a bit more compassion and empathy for other people um so for me like that's that's always the goal with 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 going deeper and more complex with characters and getting into the thorny subjects of their kind of inner tur turmoil because i think that's that's where the most interesting stories come from yeah and perfectly executed um so you mentioned that this story kind of uh bounced around for like a decade uh and i, I kind of want to hear how it ended up coming to fruition if you if there were plans to adapt it in you know film to write it as a screenplay and if there were why that what changed your mind yeah so it i it started as a film screenplay um at, that i first wrote in 2011 um i was i got my mfa in film at, at columbia back in new york and this was the final script that i wrote there and uh it was like a calling card when I moved to LA and had, had meetings with it. Producers read it and liked it. Um, a lot of feedback and, and not a lot of the plot has changed. Um, the biggest change in the book is just that I got to go a lot deeper psychologically and that Trevor's story got to flesh out and to make it a full two-hander. Whereas the original script, he was a much more, much smaller role, I would say, but the actual plot did, has not changed much. Um, but a lot of feedback that I, you know, at least a few producers were like, essentially said, can you just cut out all the character development and turn it into a straight, straight up slasher, um, oh. which is like what you guys are saying of like the premise, you could do the two dimensional version of it. And you could see that as like a direct to DVD movie. It'd um, be forgotten. Yeah. I'm it, sorry to uh, say, but like, that would not be a memorable one. What you wrote is memorable. Thank you. And I, I that's why I kind of didn't have second meetings with those people and just <laughs> decided to like shelve it. Um, you know, I, I'm grateful that I got work as a screenwriter um, and have produced film and TV credits. And, um, but yeah, I reached a point in my screenwriting career where I just kind of hit a wall of, of disillusionment. Um, you know, the irony is that again, I wrote, I wrote this script, over a decade ago, I had never even visited LA. I never had an LA meeting before, like a Hollywood meeting before I wrote it. And then cut to like, uh, you know, a decade later when I was just deeply disillusioned with being, with working in Hollywood and could not bring myself to do another pitch on an open writing assignment, could not bring myself to write another spec screenplay. I was just like, fuck this, I'm so tired of it. Um, 
And that's when, you know, especially after hearing like everybody only, only cares about IPs, you have to have an adaptation. And I was like, maybe I just take a step back. And that, that script that I love, um, at that, at the time it was called monster man. Um, what if I adapted it into a book and like both gave myself the breathing room to write something totally different, took a break from Hollywood and maybe I'll come out on the other side with, you know, not only a published novel, but like an, an IP that I could then see if people are interested in that on the film TV front. Um, can you tell so uh, those that, yeah. sorry for interrupting. Can you tell those that, cause I didn't know about this until um, when I was listening to this is horror uh, with Brian Keene. I didn't know what IP was and that's really yeah. important. And, and also I would like to hear from you and Philip, please jump in too. Cause I, I know that you have experience with this too. Can you please make it clear how important it is to never give those rights up? Because I don't have experience with that. So I would like to hear from people that do. Yeah. So IP stands for intellectual property. Um, and when it, when that's used in, in Hollywood terms, it's often referring to, uh, a book, um, a video game, a comic book, something that already exists as a proven, you know, entity that has made fun, made money on, on one front and can therefore, if it's adapted into another medium has ideally like a built-in audience and is therefore through Hollywood's eyes, more of a sure bet. So, um, yeah, it's, it is, as 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 anybody who looks at like what movies are coming out like can see that's a pretty a pretty common occurrence um and uh but yeah philip if you want to talk to more about the right stuff too i don't know yeah so it's interesting because well first of all i, I was going to comment on your last um point there which is that um i have multiple scripts that i have that i've adapted into novels because uh, I was like, I love this idea. It's a great idea. Uh, nobody wanted to buy it as um, uh, as a movie, as a straight movie script. But <laughs> but now that it's, now that they're novels, I'm getting a, I'm getting option offers. So yep. that's Hollywood, kind of in a nutshell. And I had a similar thinking when I was getting kind of hitting a wall with screenwriting. The thing with screenwriting is for people listening is the thing with screenwriting is you're really not writing it for yourself. You're writing you're writing something that will become the foundation of a story for multiple other people to build upon. And what they build may not look at all like what you uh, wrote when it's all said and done. So it's a different, it's a different, I don't want to say a different art form. It's just a different thing. <laughs> it's a different medium. And so what Brian's talking about is when you take taking a screenplay and adapting it into a novel, um, it's really making, it's, it's your, it really allows you to fulfill your own vision of what, you, you want that story to be. And that's what's been exciting uh, for me adapting, you know, my unmade unproduced screenplays into novels is because I can just do what it's, I'm the director, I'm the producer, I'm the, I'm the, I'm every, you know, I'm the, I'm the uh, craft service. I'm everybody. So um, I get to write what I want to write. And then somebody wants to take that and make it into a movie. That's great. Cause then they pay me and they go make their movie and it's, it's no sweat off my back. So um, it is a cool thing to be able to do. And when, as it pertains to rights, um, uh, yeah, what I always tell writers, and we talk about this in a couple, multiple episodes of The Dark Word, is um, your IP is your basically your ideas, and 
you do not ever want to give anybody any rights to your ideas outside of what they're specifically paying uh, for. So if if, a, if 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 you write a uh, novel and you sell the novel um, to a publisher, then the publisher has the right to publish that uh, book. That's it. They don't get any other rights. If you give them the rights to do the audiobook, then they get the rights to the audiobook. If you give them the rights to do the ebook, they get the rights to the ebook. But they don't get rights to film and TV. They don't get rights in perpetuity. They get rights for a very specific amount of time for a very specific project. That's what they're paying you for. They, and um, and the same goes when you do a movie option or a movie deal. If somebody's paying you for a movie option, you are giving them the rights to make that movie um, for a specific amount of time, they, they own the rights. And if they want to exercise those rights, they got to pay you X amount of dollars based on the production budget. But but they don't get the rights to do anything else. They can't make graphic novels. They can't make comic books. They can't make novels. They can't do it. They can't do stage plays. They can't do anything unless you tell them. So you got to be very, very cautious about rights. And especially in, in indie writers, because I have been down this path, there are publishers, um, including pu publishers that Brian and I have worked with, who will ask you in their standard contract for film and TV rights. And it is the slyest, most sleazy, dirty, underhanded thing that you could put into a writing contract because they have nothing to do one has nothing to do with the other right. um so just be, be careful when you're when you're when you're giving away rights when you're signing contracts be very cautious about all the things that are in that contract but be even more uh focused on what rights you are giving that entity or individual uh to your work that you created that you own um and that's kind of what you got to be careful. That's when it comes down to rights. So you just want to be very careful about that because people will try and exploit you, especially if you don't know any better, if you don't have an agent or you don't have a lawyer that you work with. Uh, you know, there are people out there who will try and take advantage of you. Um, so you just got to be careful about that sort of stuff. If you see that in a contract where a publisher is trying to get rights for something else, like the film and TV rights, would you pull out of that not pull out would you just uh say I'm, I'm good i'm going somewhere else or or would you just uh would you ignore it or scratch out that clause or how would you handle that i'm, I'm asking for myself but i'm also asking for you just you just car you just carve it out you just carve it out you just because whenever you do a contract you have i pray to god a representative um who's who's helping you on your side protecting your interests so whether it be a lawyer or an agent. So if uh, you have a contract that they, if, if, if a publisher sends you a contract, it's a negotiation. Then you go back with your version of the contract. And depending on how out of line the original deal is, depend, you know, will affect how much you have to go back, push back on. But for them, you know, so it kind of depends on most um, publishers that I have dealt with are pretty good about saying, look, we just want the rights to do the book um everything else is yours um you know and here's how much we're going to pay you and that's great um but there are a couple you just gotta be careful that's all and it's the same like i said the same with option agreements you can sign an option agreement for a short story or for a novel and and these things are like can be anywhere from a page to 20 pages um and uh you know it's so a 20 pagers you got to be careful of and and you have to have a lawyer look at it i mean i have had option deals for because i don't really have a traditional agent situation when it comes to film and tv stuff but i've optioned a lot of stories um for film and tv so i have literally had to go out of pocket I, in other words i've spent more on a lawyer 
than the option was paying me just to make sure that the contract was airtight and that, and that I, and then, and that all my um, rights were being protected. So it's that important to me that because I'd rather lose money than give up my intellectual property uh, without being fairly compensated for it. And I'm not trying to strike fear into all those young writers listening. I'm just kind of saying you just have to just be careful and, and make sure there's somebody representing your interest who knows what they're doing. No, I mean, every time. If it is scary, it's something that you should know. Uh, I would never know that if, if I didn't talk to all the people I talked to. So essentially, if I got in a position where I was offered a deal, like before, okay, I've never talked about this because I actually forgot it for a while, but um, I had a, I probably sent an email out to some vanity press or some vanity, I think agency. No, it was definitely an agency. It wasn't a publisher. And they were just, you know, basically buttering you up. And I, I didn't follow through with anything, but the point is because I'm a procrastinator and I just... I was like, yeah, I don't care. But if I had taken them up on the offer and, and gone through with it, I, I probably would have lost out of money and gotten nothing out of it. So it, it's important to know this stuff. Um, yeah, and I should I should caveat what I'm saying. By the way, if if every person's career is unique, every person's situation is unique. As long as you are aware of what you're signing and you understand the 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 financial structure of the deal it's not 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 saying blanket it's always a negative it's always sleazy it's always because like uh, an example would be ink shares right so they when you do a deal with ink shares they take a percentage of your film and tv rights they're they're a, they're a publisher but there's a financial structure in place they're very upfront about that fact and they actually go out and aggressively shop your work for film and tv so if i'm a if i'm a if i'm a novelist and i don't have a I don't have an agent and I have no way shape or form to get my work out to studios. Uh, and this company is willing to a publish my book and do a good job publishing my book. They're very, very good publisher. Mm. Um, they, they do, you know, very nice books and they have excellent distribution. Um, and they also uh, will market my story to film and TV studios and executives. Um, as long as the, then that, that's okay. Like the, that's nothing wrong with that because there's a financial structure in place. They're very upfront about it. It's part of their model. So it's it, every situation is unique. It, um, so I just don't want to make sure I'm not coming off as like saying if you see it in there, it's automatically bad. I'm just saying be careful and know what you're signing and make sure there's somebody representing you, uh, your interest, so that you you are fully aware of what you're giving up and what the what the financial structure of that is. But I don't want to get too into business and stuff because we're talking creatively about Brian's wonderful novel, um, which is about a slasher come to life. So I don't want to. Bored and, all, with. and all about how horrible the business of <laughs> yeah, right. is. <laughs> right. I mean, screenwriting is not a great. I mean, look. Here's the thing with screenwriting. It's you can you can make a lot of money doing it, and it pays very well if you, especially if you get into the WJ or if you're getting hired. Um, you don't have to have a produced screenplay to even make money. You can get paid to do rewrites. You get paid to do punch ups. You get paid to you know what you no know, do a draft of someone else's. Uh, work and the money's really good but the but as far as like um in my personal opinion as it pertains to like ownership of your artistic expression uh i much prefer fiction writing i'd much rather write my own novel or story and have somebody else option it and hire a screenwriter to do their version of that story versus 
write my own, you know, screenplay and then hope that somebody makes it. Cause I think it's just, um, it's just, it's just my personal preference. That's why I, and like Brian said, it can be depressing writing screenplays after a while because it's, I mean, publishing is a tough business too, but screenwriting is a different kind of tough business. You're more of a, you're more of a hired gun. You're more of a tool, you know, in the, in the toolbox uh, versus like, you know, you're the, you're the, uh, you're the owner of the landlord and uh, you know, and the head janitor of whatever it is you're creating. Yeah. Um, uh, so I was just going to add a quick, a quick personal vert, like anecdote on that front of like, I, so one of my lifetime movies was called nanny. It was the very first film I got paid to write. It's called nanny cam. Um, it's a lifetime sounds like movie, a porn. So you can probably, <laughs> but <laughs> you could, you could do that version. But it's a lifetime thriller, so you could probably fill in the blank. I mean, uh, and still sounds like was, a porn man. It was very successful. <laughs> it was very successful, um, I guess, especially overseas. And so the company came back and they're like, "Hey, like, do you want to do a sequel?" Because they're asking for a sequel. So I was like, "Great, let's do a fucking sequel." And I wrote a sequel. It was like more of a spiritual sequel. It wasn't the same characters because we couldn't get the same cast. But wrote the script because you're a writer for hire. And then you give it to them and uh, they ended up deciding not to make it a sequel, deciding to make a bunch of other changes and every word of the script was rewritten. Um, I still haven't watched the movie because they did send me the final script and I was like, this is not mine, but I am the sole credited writer on that project because those are really? the rules in terms of getting paid. And, uh, and there's an IMDB review of the movie that says, Brian McCauley should never be allowed to write Lifetime movies again. And they detail. Well, at least they all kept the... it to Lifetime movies. Yes. <laughs> and they detail all You're like, the no plot. Shit, dude. Yeah. They detail all the plot elements as to why. And I'm like, none of that was in the script that I wrote. But I, I don't know what, like, as a, as a writer for hire in this town, it's just you get paid to do the work and then you hand it off and then it goes through the machine and so many cooks in the kitchen and Sometimes you get credit for things you didn't write. I mean, TV's that way too. I mean, you get your, it's an entire writer's room, which is great. I, the ideal version of a TV writer's room is it's, you know, it's a bunch of people putting the best ideas forth and the final version like is even better than you could have imagined, but it's, it's a, it's a wild industry compared to like, and again, that's one of the reasons that I turned to fiction writing. Cause like, if somebody reads Curse the Reaper and is like, Brian McCauley should never write another novel again, I will honestly feel better, way better about that than somebody <laughs> like who's saying about a, a movie that like, I didn't, that's not the At least you had control. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, that's fine. I, it's, if it wasn't for you, that's fine. But I know what I wrote and I stand behind every word of it. But yeah. It's, yeah. So we had, uh, we recorded, I know you got, you know, but uh I was listening. We recorded David J. Scow, the season finale episode. That's two episodes from now, last night. And uh, he was actually talking about the Writers Guild and how if you're in, it's it's pretty awesome. You get a pension and, yeah. and whatnot. And he was also mentioning, because I, I looked at his IMDb and I'm like, wait a minute. You are uncredited, it says, as a screenwriter for Nightmare on Elm Street 5. He goes, yeah. And the story, he tell, he tell it's a short story, but um skip and uh specter got the job 
And the final product was like one line and they got credited for the screenplay and skip. And I'll say this because he publicly said it last year. Fucking hates the movie. It's nothing like they had it. It's it's he shit all over it. Um, I I like it. It's not a very good movie. Um, I like some of the early ones better. But my point is, is if it's not for hearing these stories from you guys, I would never know that. Yeah. No, I would never understand because, like, I'd like to write some screenplays myself, but you know, I talked to you, Brian, personally about that. I don't fucking know. So I talked to you and some other people that I know. Um, but the business end, it sounds like it's uh, something if you don't love it, don't even try. <laughs> don't even try it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you can get WGA, that's a writer's guild. Uh, um, and if you can get in the writers guild, it's, 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 it's a different kind of situation because, um, when you're WGA, when you're union, uh, first of all, it's very hard to get into the WGA. It's not just, um, producing movies. You have to produce movies that are WGA movies, meaning they have a certain budget, meaning you're getting paid a certain amount. That's WGA minimums. You're getting, it's a WGA contract. And, and a lot of, uh, stu- indie studios are resistant, resistant to that because the numbers are too high, uh, to make the, you know, more than they want to pay a writer for the movie. So many of the independent movies are non-WGA. So unless you make a WGA movie, you can't get into the WGA. So the, the great thing about being WGA to, to, to Shao's point is um, the money's a lot better. You can get, you can get work because um, the union is there and you're being protected. And if you're doing even something insignificant as a rewrite, that takes you a couple of days, you can get paid, you know, your year is kind of made. So it's, it's a different animal than publishing. Publishing is much more, you know, it's, it's just a lot more, um, I would say gorilla. I mean, you're just kind of like you're it's, but you, but to, but to Brian's point, it's you, you know, you, you own it. It's, it's you, it's your art. I mean, it's like being a painter. It's like being a musician. It's like being anything like that. It's like you can be a musician and have your own band and put out, albums and play clubs and make just enough to pay your rent, you know, and buy a six pack on the weekend, or <laughs> you can go be a studio musician and play somebody else's music all day long and probably make 10 times as much. So I, it's, it's the same kind of thing. It's just, it, it's artistic decision. Um, I have, I mean, I, I have, I, mean, I have, I just recently finished a screenplay that I was paid for. So I'm not against screenwriting. I'm just saying, I don't personally, that's not like the form that I want to, start with i i if, if you're gonna if someone's gonna pay me to write a screenplay and i'm and it's and it's the money makes it make sense for me to put in the amount of hours and work knowing and knowing up front that it's i'm just a high i'm more work for hire i'm i'm a tool um that's okay you know then that's okay it's like anything it's like being paid to do anything you know if you need to make your rent you need to make your rent but i just feel from an artistic perspective uh, writing fiction, you're is much more you have much more control over the final product. The only time you would have control over final product would be if you're a writer director and you go into the project knowing that you're the person who's going to be making the um, majority of the creative decisions that are influenced by budget, which is where the producer comes in. But um, yeah, so it's a good gig. So again, I had this sort of caveat. I, I don't want anyone to kind of black and white anything I'm saying. I'm just kind of giving personal experiences. Screenwriting is a wonderful gig if you can get it. And a lot of people, writers I know, are who are screenwriters. They love screenwriting, and they and they they don't they don't get they can't write fiction. They can't write um, n- novels or short stories. I know a, I know a couple screenwriters who are write massive blockbuster movies, and they make millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. And 
I've had one of those guys say to me to my face, like I would give anything to be able to write a novel like, mm -hmm. like you do. And I'm like, I would give anything to have your tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> so it's kind of like, um, so, you know, so it's, 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 it's just, it's just, again, it comes back to your personal situation, what your personal goals are, what you personally want to accomplish, what you're, what you love, don't love doing all that stuff. I mean, everyone's just, everyone is unique, but these are, this is just information to kind of do with, you know, to do, to have in your quiver as it were. Hmm. Brian, uh, I just want to ask one, <clears throat> one question about Curse of the Reaper, where they're basically intermissions from the main body of the story when you have each installment of the Reaper series. I love that idea. It's really cool. And if, if the way I was seeing it in my head was just uh, kind of like you got these different clips and you can show the focal points of that movie, like if it were a movie. Um, which I hope it is because I love that. But uh, you can show the focal points of those movies within the movie, and there you got like nine nine movies in one movie. That's pretty cool concept. Um, but first off, I love the fact that the last one's in space because that that's really the joke for all people that like slashers, right? I mean, like Jason X is probably uh, I don't know why they made it, but I think it's awesome. Because it's yeah. so goofy. Um, Hellraiser 4 was in space. That, they did that pretty early. But that was actually pretty well done. The space part was weird. But the the you know when you go back to um, the beginning of, of uh, the cube. That was neat. But anyways. Um, my Leprechaun 4. Yeah. <laughs> but go on. <laughs> my, my question is. When you first approach this a decade ago as a screenplay was that in it did you have intermissions of the other stories and and did you have it ended space the whole time specifically to kind of be kind of jokey about how that's that's where you end up when you stick with a series long enough in the slasher field uh that's a great question so the 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 original screenplay started with more of a, a montage of all of those Reaper films, and they were much shorter kind of impressionistic clips. Uh, and then it kind of just got into the heart of the narrative. And then when I adapted it first in, into the first version of the novel, the, those were all pulled out. Um, and I, I took a, a manuscript revision workshop um, it was like perfect timing. I had just finished a draft where I, where I hit a wall and I was like, I don't know what else to do with this without feedback. And I don't know where to go for feedback on a novel. Um, and a friend teaches at Writing Workshops LA. And so I was following that account and they posted that there was this manuscript revision workshop that was taught by a writer named Kate, <clears throat> excuse me, Kate Mariyama. Um, and I looked her up and she happens to be a horror writer and also worked as a studio executive in Hollywood for many years. And I was like, this could not be more perfect. Um, so I took the, the revision workshop with her and, um, you know, one of, one of the pieces of feedback where people wanted more Reaper in the story. Um, and I, that was when it, I realized, and I had already broken it up into eight parts and I was like, 
it's one of those things where you realize that you've already set yourself up for something and that like you kind of catch up to what your unconscious was already doing. And mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, I created the space to put them in. Um, <laughs> so that's exactly where they're supposed to go. No, um, but when I first drafted it, they were not screenplays because, you know, I, as kind of Philip was talking about with, with, you know, screenwriters who, who not everybody can write fiction as a screenwriter. I discovered very quickly that being a screenwriter was not going to help me in publishing at all. Like I had to start cold emailing agents, just like anybody else, cold queries. And actually I learned that like being a screenwriter is usually a red flag to a lot of agents who are like, this is a fucking screenwriter who thinks they can write books, but not all of them can kind of thing. Right. Um, and so I knew enough to know that like, I wasn't going to turn in like you only get like five pages when you're querying agents. So I wasn't going to query an agent with the version of the book that you read, which the first five pages would be screenplay pages. <laughs> <laughs> like, right. This clown. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I drafted them all just as like fic in the, a fiction format. Like I named them as script, like clip from the film, but I drafted them as in a fiction format. And, uh, and gratefully after the book sold, my, my editor was like, Hey, these kind of feel like they want to be script pages. You know, that we can do that. Right. That's and a good I was editor. Like, yeah, let's do oh, that. Please. That's, that's, that's <laughs> what I would like to do. Um, so yeah, it, it, I was delighted that I had that opportunity to just embrace what they were always kind of meant to be. Um, and you know, the goal with them was, was to like, a, a, like to get more of the Reaper slasher stuff in there because the narrative is more psychological horror than it is slasher until the last maybe quarter of the book um so kind of having your cake and eating it too is was my goal of like keep keep the reaper alive give the slasher stuff as we're building to our big kind of final quarter of the book um and also to contrast the how over the top as you were saying those reaper films get you know they're really they add as brendan was saying they add humor they're they're very campy um and i i thought that it provides a nice contrast to when the violence actually happens in the book narrative mm. of howard and trevor story it feels much more real compared to you know the reaper ripping heads off and and doing his shenanigans um when people start dying in the book it's like no this is this feels different hopefully was uh, yeah, i agree i agree with that 100% brian was Nightmare on Elm Street that series? Was that kind of the pattern that you were trying? If that for me, that's what it felt like. Where the first one is terrifying, and then the second one is kind of like the first one, and then it starts to go towards the jokes with the one-liners. That that's why I felt like it was kind of like a Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, it was so. So, like I mentioned, the 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 first the screenplay I wrote way back in 2011 and the Nightmare on Elm Street remake happened in 2010. So that, that the fact that Nightmare was being remade without Robert Englund was the spark for sure back then of like, wow, that must be tough to like give your whole life to this character to be known as this character and then see somebody else take it over. Um, and then, but yeah, specifically the Reaper, franchise definitely that specific element that you name where the first one 
is recognized as like scary and good. And then it gradually gets more campy, but people still love it. Um, but definitely I drew a lot from Friday the 13th and Halloween franchise as well in terms of uh, there's a, there are nods to like the cult of thorn um, from, from Halloween and Jason X in space is definitely a, a Friday the 13th nod. So there are lots of little Easter eggs um, in those film clips to all three of those, the, the big three franchises, I would say. But I knew that with the Reaper that he had to be the verbal quippy villain because it just was too much fun to not go there as opposed <laughs> to, you know, Michael or, or Jason who are silent. Um, because yeah, the narrative has Howard you know, hearing the Reaper's voice. Um, and so, and also I just am a sucker for for puns and wordplay and it was just too much fun not to to do that, so. Very cool. All right, so we, we keep calling it a slasher, but now we've gotten into talking more about how it's a Hollywood horror. So semi-related, I'm curious, what what is your opinion on, on reboots and requels and legacy sequels and all that? And I also want you to talk some shit Tell us the best and worst. <laughs> oh, no. You can't make me talk shit. That's so mean. Who uh, don't absolutely. you like in the right community? <laughs> talk about uh, who, canceled film. Let's yeah. end on season three. Who would you like to burn bridges with? Um, <laughs> look, at yeah. my, look at my cat. Look at this. Oh, he just won every... Every writer's like sweet. a cat nerd, and you, know, you just want him back for us. Thanks, bud. Yeah. Sorry, my cat's asleep. For those who are not watching the video, <laughs> oh, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't At this point, that. you just got you got to tune over to the video. I mean, yeah, there's, you, there's didn't my, you didn't notice my sleeping cat on my desk in front of me. I knew you, you had a it? cat there. I didn't know it was sleeping. Well, yeah, he sleep. He's asleep. So, <laughs> Brian, oh, wait, I, I don't want to interrupt. I want to hear who Brian hates. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Brian, is it um, hard to smile right. this much and secretly talk shit with us yeah. about all those people? <laughs> just I'm, I'm, I'm making it. shit up. <laughs> people can't see the chat where I'm just listing off. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Um, uh, no, I'm going to start with the first part of the question, which is feelings on remakes and reboots. And I think I've definitely, uh, my feelings have changed through the years. I think I used to be like, I actually remember that the essay that I wrote to get into the, the graduate film program at Columbia, I talked about how the two films that made me want to be a filmmaker were the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because I loved it so much. And it just is like pure, amazing horror. And the other was the 2003 remake, because I did not like it. And it made me angry. And it made me want to make a better horror film. And I, my feelings have softened since then. And I, I talked about this extensively on Talking Scared, but it's, it's funny that now the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot that just came out on Netflix, I fucking loved it. I thought it was so much fun. And I just, you know, I, I think a big part of it is that I have, now that I've worked in Hollywood and I know how hard it is to make a good movie that I just feel a lot more forgiving. And so everything that I watch, I just kind of look out for, even if there's like one scene where I'm like, that was really well executed. That was, that was fucking great. I love that moment. It can be, it can be like worthwhile for me. Um, because there are movies that say that they were written by me that I have to take that same approach with. <laughs> like, well, that scene was yeah. good. Um, so 
and and also like I'm kind of like anything that you know this book is you know Curse the Reaper is very much rooted in in like the legacy of these iconic characters and I I just love that they just kept they keep getting like like a volleyball like keep getting like pushed back up into the air of just like um like like Brian Fuller is now going to do a Crystal Lake TV show and I'm like sure why not let's let's just keep seeing where this goes like and that's another reason that I wanted to do the reaper film clips was because as you were kind of saying earlier like each one kind of hones in on a enough like a specific moment that gives you a taste of what's what's different about this reaper film because i love that about these franchises is that like friday the 13th part 7 they're like let's throw carrie it's jason versus carrie she's a telekinetic teenager why the fuck not and then the next one's like, let's send them to Manhattan. Even That's though my most, favorite like, one. Man, most of it is on a cruise ship because they couldn't <laughs> afford it. And I love that shit. It's just yeah. like, um, I just love like the, the creativity of just like, how do we reinvent this? Or how do we add a fresh spin? Um, my least favorite remakes are the ones that don't at least swing for the, for something different. Like, the so the the Carrie remake was was so close to the original that they had to credit the original screenwriters, um, which like not just as based on the film by, but it was like you guys just basically did the same screenplay. You didn't make enough changes to to warrant this as being an original thing. And I think those are the examples usually that I'm like, what's the point if you're just going to do the same thing? Like yeah. at least take a take a big fucking swing and, and send it into outer space because that'll be different. Rob Zombie's Halloween 2018 Halloween, I think, is a great example of what you can do well for a remake. I thought it was interesting when um uh Gus Van Sant remade Psycho. Yeah. And he oh, literally Vince Vaughn. with yeah. Vince Vaughn and Vigo Morrison <laughs> and Anne Hesh, I believe. And he literally um did a shot for shot remake yeah. of Hitchcock's movie, which was in it. So it, in its unoriginal un, in its unoriginality, it was actually original <laughs> in the sense that I don't think anyone ever been like, we're literally just going to make the exact same movie um, with different actors and in color. Um, and what's incredible is like, he got paid to make a movie that for him, I think was like just an opportunity to learn and grow as a filmmaker, right? Like who would not yeah. benefit from going through Hitchcock's movie and making it shot for shot and staging it all and like ingesting that. And then yeah. that was, that's incredible. Good luck doing that with the birds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'll be I don't know if the birds, I don't know if the birds will ever get a remake. Or maybe, or maybe it has, and I just missed it. Who knows? But I don't think it's scary enough you know, for today's audiences, you know, I mean, yeah. there's a lot of birds. I don't know. <laughs> I just feel like, <laughs> I just feel like uh, today's audiences are going to be like, yeah, so. like, I think especially that? after. Oh, they're after... pecking their way through. <laughs> yeah. I can see Peck some us. hellbillies just taking a gun. I'm going, you know, just bye. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. if I think the birds had its moment, which was, I believe, originally in uh Daphne du Maurier's story and Don't Look Now. Yeah. I'm not mistaken. Isn't there a sequel though? I I don't it was... might be and I might like I said I, I might have I might have missed it. I it's it, I'm not I'm not, not really a big horror movie guy, so I don't follow a lot of the horror movie stuff. So 
the, yeah, the, the sequel to the birds, they did the reverse of alien. So, so instead of alien to aliens, it was the birds to the bird. Is that true? I see myself out. <laughs> oh, I see. See, I, 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 for all I know, you're I being believed it. totally serious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the weird thing was they brought back Big Bird from Sesame Street, and that was where Wait, I was left? like, you know what? <laughs> he was the he was the villain. The bird yeah. in the bird, which is the I remake of the birds. Joke flew over my head. Well, oh, but even, they've even done. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Don't laugh at him. He didn't this do that on just... purpose. <laughs> Shut up, Brennan. <laughs> the, what the, the fuck? That's two episodes in a row. You throw me under the bus. You're just caught on fire. That's what's happened now. It's just gone from. The to taste of air, bus a bird tire the size taste of good bird you. would be objectively horrifying. You guys would be interested, interested to know. I don't think I've ever seen. I've seen the Halloween movies. I don't think I've ever seen any of the Friday the 13th movies. Holy shit. I don't think I've ever seen... I've seen um, the, the first part. three Nightmare, Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Three is great. Dream Warriors is... Dream Warriors was yes. my favorite. But oh, that's, it's but that's it. I never saw... I never saw any of the other ones. I don't watch a lot of... Uh, I'm disappointing. I'm sure some people who might be listening. I don't watch a lot of horror movies. I don't, I'm not yeah. really interested. Um in it i watch a lot of cronenberg movies i watch this mm. kid which is, is horror but i watch a lot of like the slasher movies i don't know i don't i don't find them interesting yeah i, I wish i did because it seems like a lot of fun yeah, I, 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 i'm I, with I, you I though philip yeah but so, i think it's um, also just a bit where i like my youth was the oh, i'm dating myself but like the blob uh the thing uh those are great titles. I mean, wait, I was kind you're of talking about uh, wait, Blob and Thing. Are you talking about like the Chuck Russell and the John Carpenter versions of Blob and Thing, or the original? Well, I'm talking about the I'm talking about the original. I'm talking about the original Blob. I'm talking about the but I'm talking about the Carpenter thing, which is I'm, yeah. I'm, but I'm saying, but I grew up watching, you know, the movie. I you know Jaws. You know, I I grew up in the '70s, so I just I don't really yeah, you know. So I think uh, like I, and I think Friday the 13th was a big deal at one point, and then. It kind of fell off. It wasn't really on. See, it wasn't really on, when it came out theatrical. I don't know if it was on a lot of radars. I think when 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 um when Friday the Thirteenth became big was when it hit VHS, and yeah. then it became a cult thing, and then they did the sequels, and then it grew and grew and all that kind of stuff. But I don't, and I don't remember it being a big deal when I when I was younger. But yeah, anyway, was, I never one was... I never got into slash. I never got into slashers very, very much. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah, because Friday the 13th was an indie movie that that the producers and directors sold to Paramount and then they just cashed in on the sequels, which was a big thing that I took for the, the Night of the Reaper of it all. And there was there used to be a okay. whole lot more like history of the franchise that I cut out because it was just like super cumbersome and I was just nerding out on, <laughs> on referencing all of that stuff. But it's I love that like every horror writer has different influences and different subgenres that are more resonant with them and they get to infuse into their work and it's just like that's one of the things that and I'm still discovering like like all the different subgenres and, and capital W weird horror and it's it's awesome. There's like Yeah, so I think I was more of like a pulpy yeah childhood. Like I watched like the original Fly was a big influence. The original Fly, the black and white fly um 
you know, uh, you know, the invisible man, you know, crap like that, you know, just like the really campy pulpy stuff, um, that, you know, was kind of on TV a lot when I was growing up, you'd watch, you know, you'd watch yeah. all day long. You'd watch all those creature features with Sir Graves. I'm from Detroit. So Sir Graves Gosley was like the local host, right. Who's who hosted all these like horror movies, bad black and white horror movies and like them and, you know, the, the big ants and stuff like that. It's just, so yeah, I, I came from more of that school of things to your point, which I think is an interesting point. Like I remember the killer bee movie. I remember killer ants movie. Yeah. I remember, um, you know, stuff like that were really way more. I remember uh trilogy of terror was a big one. Um, a blood, um, blood, um, a Karen black movie. That was a book oh. by, uh, blood sec, not blood sec, blood Come on, guys. It's a very famous nobody blood sacrifice. I don't know, man. Um, I have to Google it. Not there's a lot of people simple. screaming the at the rate. Yeah, there's a lot of people screaming at the radios right now. Um, <laughs> blood Diamond, right? Amityville, Amityville Horror, right? That was yeah. a huge influence. So those are the kind of movies that I was really influenced by. I would say when I was younger, and then and then reading a lot of King and Dean Koontz and Clive Barker. Um, yeah. That's kind of what I that was my immersion into horror when I was developing my my horror brain. Um, I like I loved, I, I I'm sorry I'm sorry I truncated but I loved there was um there was a moment and I think I was talking to speaking of chance we were talking about this in his podcast he was like what was the moment that sparked your love for and I said you know I, I didn't really think about it and I said I think when I was a little kid I was probably like I have no idea I was six or seven and I was laying on the floor watching the black and white TV. And um, and then we were watching The Fly. And at the end of The Fly, the original Fly, not the David Cronenberg Fly, which is a masterpiece, but the original Fly, um, the whole movie, the guy's walking around with the big fly head on, right? He's wearing like a suit and he's got like the fly head. And he's like, and he's like, ah, and they're all like screaming. And he's like, and it's, they cut away before anything bloody happens. But then at the end of that movie, he goes back into the machine and he uh, turns back in, in an effort to turn back into a, a human and instead so the machine goes off and the love interest woman is like where martin where are you and and you just hear his little voice going like help me help me and then she looks and there's a spider web in the corner of the room and the guy had now is a fly body and a man's head and he's stuck in the spider web and the spider is crawling towards him and he's like, help me. And then like the spider jumps on him and he's like, ah. And then she like, she takes like a rock or a book or something. And she like smashes the spider web with the book, killing the spider and her, her, the love of her life. Who's now half man, half fly. And I was watching this as a little kid. And I was like, what just <laughs> happened? Because that was both super scarring and awesome because <laughs> I was just like, so adrenalized by that moment. And, um, and from then on, it just, it just took off. But so that was kind of, and I think, I wonder if like it's reflected in the way people write horror writers. I don't know if it is or not, but I don't know. I do feel like I'm more pulpy or at least in some of my short stories, probably more than my novels, but I don't know. Who knows? I'm not going to self diagnose, but. <laughs> Brian, have you, have you read Philip's short story? This is the first piece of fiction I ever read by him. Uh, it's called my love. Do not wake. It's from the uh, midnight exhibit volume one of uh, uh what was the publisher unnerving uh, unnerving magazine unnerving yeah 
don't think I've read that one. Philip, I don't think you... anybody's read that one. I'm shocked that was your first Tarkasi story. I don't Patrick. even know how I came across it, man, but it's so fucked up. It's it's ingenious. I I loved it. Can you go give us an elevator pitch? Man, people hate that story. I'm so glad you <laughs> like it. It's so weird. It's awesome. <laughs> no, everybody hates that story. Oh, fuck um, them. Unless <laughs> um, they're listeners. No, I'm just kidding. Well, that was a story that I wrote because it was... Um, I wrote it. I'm in a. I'm in a. Three, it's a three-story anthology. It's with myself, Stephen Graham Jones, and Renee Miller, um, and it was published by yeah, Unnerving Press. It's still available. I think you can get it on Amazon. Um, I, I don't know what it's the Midnight Exhibit Volume One. I'm looking at it up on my shelf. Um, yeah, so that's like a ten thousand word story about a woman who has an affair with the back of her husband's head. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ten thousand words. I love it. It, it makes so. It and makes I said sense. it to one. What do you I said it to one guy. Who it is? And he was this. Okay, so this is a kind of a good story. So this guy says, "I want to publish you in my my. I have an annual anthology. I'm using annual lightly. Uh, and I want to publish a Fracassi story. I'm a huge fan of your work. Huge fan. Can you give me a story? And I was like, "Does it have to be original?" And he's like, yeah, it has to be original. I said, okay, um, I'll write. And he was just, give me the most batshit crazy story. I love your work. It can't go wrong. I'm so excited. So I'm like, okay. So I wrote that story for him. And I sent it to him. And two days later, he emailed me back and he said, what the fuck is this? And I'm like, <laughs> what do you mean, man? It's like my, it's my, I worked really hard on that. Like it's, it's a 10,000 word horror story. He's like, this is, I can't publish this. He goes, this is, it's, this is crazy. Um, he's like, no, I want like a horror story. I want like, and I was like, it is a horror story. And he's like, I can't publish this. So he didn't publish it. So I ended up publishing it with unnerving, but um, <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, part. That's hilarious. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, I don't know. I think, look, I think you just got to, you know, you go with your, you go with your gut. I mean, you just, it is what it is. It's my, like I write, all my stories are unique for the most part. They all have a different feel. All my novels have a different kind of feel to them. You know, I wrote, uh, I wrote a couple horror novels um, and that are all, you know, coming out. And then I wrote, but then I, I wrote, then I wrote a science fiction novel. Um, God bless my agent. She was like, she just rolled with it. She was like, great. She was like, just, you don't want to write another horror novel? I'm like, no, I want to write the science fiction novel. So I wrote the science fiction novel. Then I wrote a thriller. Um, so, you know, I think you just got to like, and I've written pulp, really pulpy, crazy, pulpy stories that are silly. And and they've written like very dramatic, dark stories that are very character based. And I think it's just, that's the beauty of doing what we do in fiction is you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever feels good at that time. And, um, you might not publish it. You, people might hate it. Um, but I think for the most part, I think when you are true to yourself and you're true to your voice, um, I think people, readers um, gravitate to that. And I think they respect that. And I think that they enjoy reading that. And I think, um, you know, so, and I, and I you know we talked about Brian's book and, and I think that's exactly one of the things that I think has uh one of the reasons it's caught fire a little bit is i think it's because it's a really unique um voice and it's a unique vision and patrick you said it earlier it's kind of a whole new take on the slasher genre that really hasn't been done before at least not to my knowledge 
And I think, uh, you know, kind of that meta almost um, slasher. And I think that's what, you know, that's what, that's what readers want. They want artists to express themselves um, in the way they see is the truest form of, 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 of um, their creative vision. So um, I think you don't want to, you know, it's, it's the whole thing about not chasing trends. I think you just want to be true to yourself. And so that story is a perfect example of my love. Do not wait, which is a story that will probably never be published ever again in any way, shape or form. You gotta, you but, gotta read it. <laughs> but I'm glad, but I'm glad, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was awesome. It's like uh, the greatest thing about fiction writing is like, there's the, the, the flexibility to play with different genres different forms from from flash fiction to poetry to short story to novella to novel and there there are no and then also playing with with perspective like i i adapted a a tv pitch that i never sold i adapted into a short story that's essentially like an sos i I adapted it into a second person kind of sos call at the reader and it, it was published in dark matter magazine and now we're we're we we're packaging it on the on the film and TV front, um, and it's like sci-fi but horror. And like, I'm like, oh, cool! I'm a sci-fi writer too. Like, that's great. And um, like, just getting to there's it feels like to me just a much bigger sandbox than screenwriting. Um, yeah, because screenwriting you can only write in third person, present tense, totally objective. And and to to play in fiction where you can just like go through all these different perspectives, different lengths. I'm working on a novella now and realizing like, oh yeah, certain stories fit that length way better and don't don't need to be stretched out to a novel. Um, and I, I hope that there's more of that on the film TV front as well, that like not every story needs to be a, a 90 to two hour movie. And maybe we can have more kind of like like post that, that uh, Zoom horror movie that was the length of a Zoom session at like, it was like 45 minutes or whatever. And it's like, great. Can't now that we have streaming, like things should just be the lengths that they need to be. We don't have to force things into these different formats. Jen Shepard yeah, and Rob you- Savage's uh, host actually did that really well. 56 minutes, I believe. Yeah. And you can also have like another thing, like as I'm sure Brian conversations that you've had are similar to ones I've had with your work is like, well, we can make this, um, this, this, you know, this can become a, you know, feature. Or this can become a 30-minute episode of a TV show. Or maybe this is going to become a six-episode uh, miniseries. Or maybe it's going to become a five-season you know, TV series. Like, you can kind of... And I think a lot of that ends up being the... Um, you know, a lot of that ends up being what... The director is the one who really takes over the vision. And to, to Brian's point, can do creative things with perspective and things like that. The writer has to kind of always stay pretty traditional. Um, because... You have to understand it's not just one person reading your screenplay. It's 500 people reading your screenplay and they all need to know what to do on the day. So you can't kind of be, you can't screw around with screenplays. Like the costumer needs to know what the costume is. You know what I mean? The locations guy needs to know what the location is. You can't be all like creative and artsy and weird in screenplays. You have to be pretty technical. Um, so that's, that's, you know, whereas the director can really do something. I mean, you can, you can, you can emphasize or you can suggest or you can hint at certain things but you for the most part you got to stay pretty straightforward so i think that's the director really is the one who is allowed to flex their creative muscle when it comes to like adaptations but um but yeah but to a degree um you can you can choose your different formats and uh streaming to your point exactly has made so much 
that um, flexibility even so much more profound now with like you turn on Netflix and you look at all these different horror movies or that you want to watch that night or whatever. And some of them are like, you know, some of them are like 52 minutes and you're like, what? And you know, <laughs> whereas in the old days, everything had to be 88 minutes. I think I'm getting that number right because with commercials that brought it to an hour and a half, which was, or whatever it would be, uh, or two hours so that you could actually put it on TV with commercials. So that was like where this old school, like, um, number came from like the whole 90 minute movie is essentially because they can't have it more than two hours with commercials. So if it's ever on network TV, they can fit it all in. So that's, that's kind of where that came from. That's it. Like there's no other reason for a movie to be 90 minutes. Um, it's just happened. And then that just became like the norm. Um, and now movies are three hours and some movies are, you know, like I said, 50 minutes or whatever. So it's, it's the, the, it's gotten a lot looser, but, um, but it's, 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 Content has gone. Content is getting, and content distribution is getting uh, pretty interesting uh, in this day, uh, day and age with with what all is going on with streaming and and uh, online and uh, you know YouTube and stuff like that. You can do a lot of different things now. So, I just want to remind everyone listening or watching that we are nominated for the podcast of the year nonfiction. All you got to do is go to thisishorror.co.uk/awards. Um, and also don't forget to go to the short story collection of the year where Philip Fricassi has his in there. And all you got to do is scroll down and see Beneath the Pale Sky by Philip Fricassi. Oh, I almost butchered your last name. Apologies, sir. Um, Brian, what are you currently reading? I just finished reading uh, White Horse by Erica T. Worth. And I think anybody who follows this show has heard her and heard about the book. And it's fantastic. It's such a wonderful blend of noir and horror. And it's just a really like palpable. It made me really want to go get a drink at that bar. Um, And then um, I also just finished reading and I've been shouting about this on Twitter, but Walter Mosley's book, nonfiction book, Elements of Fiction. Oh, I'm holding up for the viewers. Um, it's short, it's like 115 pages and it's a really sort of conversational book about the elements of fiction. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just beautifully written and makes you really think about the form in ways that I found really incredibly inspiring. So definitely recommend that one. I love Mosley. Yeah. He's fucking great. He's really good. What about you, Philip? What are you reading? Um, I'm cheating. I'm looking at my 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 reading list. Um, I just finished uh, Writer's Bone. Wait, sorry, Winter's Bone by know. Daniel Woodrell, which was the with Je- the Jennifer Lawrence movie, uh, which was Southern Gothic. Which is, is amazing. I immediately ordered like three more of his books. Such so a beautifully written book. Uh, and I also finished a fantasy, dark fantasy book called The Warded. Man by Peter Brett, which I highly recommended. Would recommend um, Dark Fantasy. I think it's called The Demon Cycle. There's four books in that series. Uh, I am. I just read uh, Bats Out of Hell by, um, uh, uh, which is a Centipede Press reissue. Um, and uh, and then some modern horror books I just read that I really enjoyed. Uh, I read uh, Theme Music by T. Marie Vandelli. I don't know if you've read that one, Brian. That one is really good. 
And I read another book that I really enjoyed recently um, called Mother Thing. I want to get the author's name. I'm oh. looking at my notes. Ainsley Mother Hogarth? Thing. Uh, Ainsley Hogarth. Yeah, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed that as well. Um, and I'm just about to begin reading, um, speaking of Nat Cassidy, because you mentioned him like an hour ago. Um, I'm gonna. I'm just about to start reading uh, Mary. That's next on my list. That that is that's on my list and my um, and um, on the new uh, uh, Mariana Enriquez um, novel that I can't remember the title of off the top of my head. I'm sorry. Is it uh, but, Our Share of Night? Yeah, yeah, that's it. It, it. It's out in the UK now, so I bought it. I bought the UK edition just so I could have it. I think it comes out in the US like in March or something. So. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna read Mary next, and then um, and then I'm gonna read that Mariana Enriquez book, which I'm very excited, uh, very excited about. I was actually gonna bring that up. Um, I haven't started yet, but that was actually my next book that I'm diving into: Our Share of Night by Mariana Enriquez. Um, plan is to have her on early season four. So that'll be exciting. With Paul Tremblay, who introduced us to her, uh, made us aware of her, rather. Um, so yeah. stick around for that, folks. Brennan, what are you currently reading? I just started this earlier. I'm not super far into it, but uh, I was encouraged by David J. Scow to start The Last King of California by Jordan oh, yeah. Harper. Yeah, uh, we, have, we have him on in January, so I've got um, Everybody Knows uh sitting over here he's got that coming out next year i've got this one i've got some harper to catch up on but i loved she rides shotgun so much and this um this one it's not like a sequel or anything like that but it kind of takes place in the same universe deals with the same you know aryan gang that uh takes center stage in in she rides shotgun uh and jordan harper brilliantly deals with the uh, should I write a prelude or will readers skip it problem by just introducing the book with chapter zero, which uh, I, <laughs> I appreciate. I, I love yeah. that little, uh, almost I've seen kind of, a couple I, writers. I I've seen a couple writers do that. I think it's, I think it's interesting. He's, a, seen, he's also before, a but... film and TV writer. He, his episode of yeah. was, was great. And I, I got so much out of like listening to him talk about yeah his experiences in the industry on, on both sides of film, TV and publishing. What was his show, Brian? I'm sorry. What was it? I you know? can't remember off the top of my head. Oh, yeah, either written. can I. Either can did I. Know, I know. I know. Gotham and Gotham? the um, Gotham, yeah. oh yeah, Gotham is one uh, of them. Fuck, what is it called? The not the opportunist. Um, ah, I'm struggling to think of it. I'm just going to cheat. The mentalist. Yep, that's it. Mentalist. Oh, the mentalist was his. Yep. Interesting. Uh. Okay, sorry. I thought you guys were going to jump in. Um, Brian, where can people follow you? <laughs> I am currently on Instagram and Twitter. I'm considering TikTok, but we'll see. Uh, for now, uh, Instagram, Twitter, at Brian McWriter. Um, that is also my website, brianmcwriter.com, because most people misspell my last name anyway, so it's much easier to just do MC Writer. Um, yeah, and there's... Uh, Links on my website to the short stories that I've mentioned and the nonfiction piece from Nightmare Magazine. If you want to check those out too, is the Dark Matter piece piece on your website for free? It is not for free. I think it's five bucks uh, for the PDF. 
Um, but there's a short story in there from that shortwave magazine published uh, called Won't Last Long that I highly recommend people check out. It is about, I'm, I'm forcing in a pitch here, folks, but it's about a couple in LA who is so desperate for affordable housing that they move into a mausoleum in Hollywood, Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Uh, so I like to pitch it as like an L.A. rom-com by way of creep show. Um, and that one's free to read. So check it out. And that is run by our buddy Alan Lestufka. It is indeed. Is Short, Shortwave the same guy that uh, the same the same um, publisher that just did um, the Clay McLeod Chapman? Chapbook, yes, right? the yeah. chapbook. Okay. Um, and I think I can say I, I, I got one of those, yeah. In the mail, yeah. Mama Bird. Yeah, they're doing great stuff. And I you think this this episode bastard. is is dropping on, on the 19th. Yep. 19th. Uh, I, I think the announcement's coming either today, the day this drops, or the day after. So this might be an exclusive, but I'm gonna be doing a novella for shortwave. Nice. Um, I know they've already he's already announced there's doing he's doing a killer VHS line of novellas. So novellas that are inspired by those 80s VHS vibes. And uh, mine will be a Christmas-themed horror novella. That That's is, cool. has been so fun. Nice. Right. Yeah. I'm going to buy that Dark Matter story, Brian. I want to read that sci-fi oh, story. Oh, thank you, you. Yeah, I hope you enjoy it. It's a, yeah, Or you could email it to me. Yeah. <laughs> Can you please cut that out, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to buy it. I want to get. I want to support Dark Which Matter. Which part? All of it? it. Yeah, I'll Dark Matter. It. I mean, they've been fucking, I got five they're bucks. killing it. I got five they're bucks. like, yeah. Uh, where can people follow you, Philip? Uh, I am on uh, Facebook. I am on Instagram, uh, which is at P Fricasi, and I'm on Twitter at Philip Fricasi, and my website is pfricasi.com. And Brennan, where can people follow you, sir? Uh, it is Friday night. I'll be home all weekend, so they'll have to wait until Monday morning and probably around the corner. Um, I'll leave for work around six thirty. Um, if they're slot, okay, I muted you. Yeah, that joke's not funny anymore. You can follow Brian at BrianLafaro.com. I, I muted you because you're acting with mainly too. It's driving me nuts. Um, you can follow the show at Dead Headspace at uh, on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, any final thoughts, Brian McCauley? I mean, I've been listening to the show for so long, so it's really a, a genuine like honor to, to be here and chat with you guys. It feels very surreal. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for the wonderful surprise of springing Philip Fricasi on me. This is so great. <laughs> I was going to jump out of a cake, but we didn't have the budget. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Brennan, you can answer if you want. I'm not going to mute you again. Uh, what for final thoughts or about a Philip can I mute out Brennan from Mike? Do I have the power? <laughs> you cannot. You're not the host. But come on, man. <laughs> Will he be wearing nothing but flannel when he jumps out of the cake? Philip, no, you right. can't. I know. Come on, Philip. You're I know. Host. I wear a lot of flannel. We don't need to make a big deal about it. <laughs> the worst part is I live in Los Angeles. You think I wouldn't own a single flannel T-shirt, but I, or shirt, but I do. I'm sorry. I interrupted Brennan's final thoughts. Oh, is this my? I, I wasn't sure what you were throwing at me. So, all right, my final thoughts are, uh, Philip. Obviously, we love having you on here, man. We uh, any chance we can get to have you on here, whether it's to talk about your books or to talk about a book you loved, we're down to do it. And uh, Brian, I'm so glad we uh, got you on here. One of the last episodes of season three. At least I'm pretty sure that's what season we're on. 
Yeah. I don't know. Patrick can confirm that. Uh, I'm, it's true. Uh, I'm a hundred percent going to check out that, uh, that, that Christmas novella from shortwave. Yes. And I really look forward to the, uh, curse the Reaper sequel where, uh, they send him back in time to the wild West. <laughs> oh, it's happening. You Get have to write ready, it. Now. Buzzard's edge. <laughs> Buzzard's Holy edge. That you said? Yeah, no one knows I, what that. I inscribed for, for Brennan a reference to his wonderful oh, oh, funny, funny, funny. horror western news that the Reaper's going to stroll into town at high noon. <laughs> Dragging his chain. Yes. I love yeah. it. <laughs> and this is I'm circling back to rights. I do own the rights to the characters, so I can do whatever the fuck I want with it. Holy so Reaper, shit. Reaper Are you guys serious? Because I would, I would want to be a reader read that. I want to read that. Uh, Brian and I would have to have some sort of like fist fight to decide who comes out on top. So, (laughs) well, when I I was talking to Chance on his pot on the Talking Scared podcast, and he mentioned that he was he acted Chance or Neil. I was talking to Chance on the Tombs of Terror. Which one? Tombs of Terror. Yeah, is that Chance? Oh yeah, Tombs of Terror podcast. Sorry, I get get mixed up. Tombs of Terror. I've been on both in the last two weeks. I'm looking Tombs of Terror podcast, and he mentioned that he played the reaper yep. when you guys did your event which you mentioned earlier so he feels like now he is the reaper and that See, any is... anyone who plays the reaper from here forward is basically <laughs> m- mimicking his original version so i don't and this know is why you, again we're circling that. back to the conversation about you need people to look over your contracts because chance yep. did not did not sign anywhere and uh yep. he's gonna he's gonna get replaced and then and then i'm going to adapt the story of chance going mad as he tries <laughs> Insane. to roll back right <laughs> yeah he's on the, he's on the blame but himself so philip any final thoughts <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty uh, sure you'd say yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, can I plug my can I plug my book? Can I tell people to go buy my book? Absolutely, like that one. I was going to mention it. Boys in the well, Valley. Come over this one. Child, Child, Child Strangers. Alone with Strangers. Do we have another hour to talk about how fucking good that book is? Because it's <laughs> my favorite book of the year, and it's goddamn that book. Go ahead, Brandon. So good. I'm just about to jump into that one, honestly. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah. So Child Lone Strangers came out, and then in February, Gothic comes out. This is the Earthling edition of Gothic, which was limited. That's but the uh, Cemetery Dance version comes out February. So, yeah, hopefully, yeah, go check out, you know, one of the books. I would, I would love it. Seriously, folks, A Child Alone with Strangers is a fucking, oh, it's so good. It, yeah. I want to like, Yeah, if, you'll, you'll get pulled in from the first It's a big chapter. one, 600 pages of. And I, as I said, like or, I don't usually, I usually avoid bigger books, but that one from the first chapter, I was like so, so pulled in, and I, you, the character, the depth of characters, it's just. Anyway, we'll do another. Thank episode. you. Another episode. <laughs> My final thoughts are that it, this is awesome. We love talking to both of you guys. It won't be the last time. Uh, this is like the third time with you, Philip. Brian, this is only the first time for you. So very exciting. Really cool that you listen to the show. Thank you for doing that. And uh, yeah, next episode is 180. It's with Megan, a.k.a. The Horror Babe with Donnie Goodman. Um, Stay tuned for that. And then one more for this season with David J. Scott. We talk about a whole lot. That's uh, over two-hour episode. 
So, yeah, he, he's a talker. Um, I'll leave it at that.